welcome. It's great to have you all here tonight. For those of you joining us uh, in the United States, happy Veterans Day. It's a great day to remember that freedom isn't free and that uh, you know it's a great day to thank a veteran. For some of you, that might be your parent or your grandparent. So for any of you joining us tonight and for veterans everywhere, we want to say thank you for your service. Let's hear it for them. Now it's time to hear from someone who always soldiers on for science. It's Dr. John with the Technology Spotlight. We can learn a lot from nature. A few years back, some uh, researchers in Japan were working on high-speed trains and they used these to go across the country. Well, they had issues when the train would go through a tunnel it would cause an actual sonic boom sometimes, and it would even damage the tunnels. And they studied it and studied it, and finally, here's what they came up with. See, the train has a really nice, long, pointed nose, and they found out that that makes it so they don't have the big disruption. But where did they come up with that idea? Turns out that they got some inspiration from one of their feathery friends. This is a kingfisher, and that beak is a very similar shape to the train. And so that inspiration made it possible for them to figure out how to do the train. Now, the kingfisher needs a beak like that in order to go shooting into the water and catch the fish, right? So uh, it needs the same kind of thing, you know, the break the water barrier, right? <laughs> or something like that. Well, here's another one. This is a humpback whale, right? And you can see those little bumps on its fin. What do you think that would be good for? Well, some people who make windmills were studying that, and they realized that those bumps actually make it so the well is more efficient when it moves through the water. It causes less drag. So they developed some wind turbines that were that shape, and they were actually able to get higher efficiency from their wind turbines. So it's another example of where nature had a good idea and we kind of copied it. Okay, we really copied it. There are lots of examples. Another example would be shark skin. It has some really neat properties, and uh, that's been copied. And then uh, there's butterfly blue, as I call it, and it's the really pretty blue on some butterflies where it's not actually a certain material, but it's rather the shape of the structure, <clears throat> the nanostructure of the wing. And that's what makes the blue color that you see. Pretty amazing. Uh, well, here's another one. This one's a little bit trickier. <laughs> it's got to be something special about that, right? <laughs> this is a cicada, and uh, it turns out that its wings have some really neat properties. The wings are hydrophobic, which means they repel water, and so they always stay dry. And they also seem to repel bacteria. They prevent bacterial growth on them. And that's the kind of property that you want on surfaces in the hospital, maybe different tools and things in the hospital. So how do we take that neat technology that the cicadas have and use it for our clean instruments? <laughs> Sounds kind of funny to go from the bugs to our hospitals, but it's amazing technology if we only knew how to use it. Well, some researchers have been developing a way that they can actually reproduce nanostructures like what's on this wing. Let's take a close look that we would see through a microscope 
on one of these wings. You can see those little teeny nanostructures. They're like little towers. And uh, they developed a new process for taking that nanostructure and reproducing it with another material. That way they can tangle out whether it's the material the wing's made out of or the actual structure and see what's the difference between the two. So their process involved taking this dissolvable rosin that they put on the wing. Okay, the dissolvable rosin, that fingernail polish, yeah. <laughs> so high tech. <laughs> Actually, it was a pretty big breakthrough because other technologies that we usually use for this kind of thing involve uh, heating it way up or using toxic materials that would ruin the wing before you could even get the nanostructure off. So this process is actually easier and simpler and with nail polish, you know, affordable. <laughs> and so they were able to do a lot of experiments with different materials. Let's take a look at how this process works. So they start over there on the left with the wing surface and they put on their dissolvable rosin nail polish, right? <laughs> Wait for it to dry. <laughs> and then they can peel that layer off and it actually makes a mold of the nanostructure of the wing. Just something I'll bet you didn't know about nail polish. And then they actually deposit on that um, mold that they made a material. They did it with a silicon polymer and they also did it with copper. And both structures worked quite well. They were able to reproduce the same kind of structure that was on the wing and verified that it is in fact the shape, the actual structure, not the material that's making such a, a big difference in making the wings hydrophobic and repelling the water. Now, copper is really interesting because by itself, it's already antimicrobial. It will kill bacteria just by itself, uh, regardless of the shape. So now we have a shape that won't let water set and won't let anything, uh, any bacteria grow, plus it's already antimicrobial. So there's some pretty interesting possibilities. And they think that they can actually scale this up somewhat and be able to use structures like this. But the biggest thing is now we can actually do experiments where we try what's on the wing or we try something else. And nature is full of different possibilities. There are so many good ideas from nature. All we got to do is take, take the time to enjoy nature, right, and find them. Yeah, and that's all the tech we have the time for. Thank you. Now it's time for Breakthrough Moments in Science with Tobias. So how important is science? Is it like, mm, yeah. hopefully everybody's like, you know, putting their hands up mentally. Okay, I don't require that much of you. Um, <laughs> Science. It turns out science is extremely important pretty much everywhere. And we live in a world that uses pretty much everything around us because of science and because of breakthroughs, discoveries, inventions, and so forth. And it turns out studying and exploring how things work breaks things open to be able to create brand new industries. And we're going to talk about a really cool one tonight, one that everybody is familiar with, cement and concrete. Cement and concrete. Now, what is that? Isn't that stuff where you get it wet 
and then when it dries, it's really tough. No, I think, I think you're thinking of those one-package meals from Walmart. Okay. But cement and concrete. What is concrete? What is cement? Are they the same thing? Oh, I, need to, I need to give a distinction between the two because some of the construction people in our midst um, are very passionate about that concrete is not the same as cement. Concrete is what you make with multiple components, and cement is one of them. Some people say it's like the flour to your cake. Okay, now you understand. Um, con concrete is one of the things that they make combining cement with other things. But there's some magical stuff with this cement. Now, what is it? Do you just take, like, mud and rock and mash it up into a powder and then get it wet and then it dries? Well, I mean, if we jump way back into history, people were making blocks, bricks with certain kinds of mud, and they put straw on it to give a kind of a fibrous structure so that it could be strong, and then when it would dry, they would use it for building material. And we get to Rome, and Rome did some incredible things with cement, actually kinds of cement that they used in Rome, and you can still see some of the structures that they built even to this day. And how did they do it? We, we know that with cement, you have to mix certain things together that then when you add water, something chemically happens. And we don't really know everything about the recipe that the Romans used because it turns out when they got conquered, the conquerors didn't really pick up on that. And it got lost with, with the Roman Empire. And if you look at the buildings of Europe after Rome, we start going back to stones and bricks and you know the castles and everything, not the cement. So it's not until like the 1700s that people start exploring this more. And they start exploring it from the scientific perspective and the chemistry behind it. And it turns out there's a lot of important chemistry within how cement works. So what is going on? Well, it turns out that certain mixtures of different rocks and other substances, if you mix it together, they have an interesting characteristic where, where if you add the right amount of water, they will harden in a way. And if you can get that mixture more refined and more perfect, what is perfect? Well, you have to test it. Then you can get it to be even stronger. So different scientists are looking at how can I make a stronger cement. And we're going to talk about Joseph Aspden. And he is in Europe, and he's working on this, this mixture. And one of the main ingredients that they had discovered was really important is limestone. And there's a lot of limestone in the earth. So if you could figure out how to refine this, it could be a really cheap and effective way to produce material. And so he's, he's mixing limestone and some clay and some other things together, and he gets an idea to mix it together and then to burn it, basically. He applies a very strong amount of heat to this mixture of limestone and some other things. And it turns out that was a very important key. So he takes these pieces that he's burnt, and he breaks them into very small powder, and he applies water, and it hardens incredibly. In fact, you, you could even harden it underwater. And when the water touches this, this powder he had made, a reaction occurs. And we're not, get, we're not going to get real deep in what actually happened, but there's a change that happened. It turns out that when he applied that heat, it transformed those ingredients and combined them in an important way so that when the water came, the right reaction happened. And it actually hardened. And this change that happened, so it didn't harden because it dried, it hardened right under the water. 
and it turned into something new. And so he starts looking at how to market this and he, he's going to name it. So he decides he's going to name it after a quarry uh, th that was nearby that was known for very, very hard rock and it was the Portland Isle quarry. So he named it Portland Cement. And this would become the, the main stone upon which we would build this industry. But the next challenge is how do you convince people? I mean, if you look at this, so you're going to build my building with that mud and I'm going to stand on it and I'm going to trust that that's not going to fall. How is that going to be strong enough? And, you know, concrete, so the cement mixed with other things, it turns out there's four main components. Cement is one of them. Water, of course, because water is what's making that cement uh, chemistry magic happen. But then sand and gravel, those are kind of the main ones that they use. Well, those four things mixed together can produce some incredibly strong material. Well, in the States, we start getting into looking at actually producing this, but what are you going to use it for? I mean, it's easy now because we know what it's used for now, but back then, what are you going to use it for? Well, there was uh, a visionary who saw this and immediately picked up on what a big industry this could be. And he was a guy from New Jersey named Thomas Edison. And he actually had an iron ore plant. And the, the byproduct turned out to be a great ingredient for this concrete. And so he identified it and he started, he converted that plant into a cement plant where he would make cement. And he, he basically envisioned, this is so incredible, we should build buildings with this, which sounded pretty you know, bold. You're going to build multi-story buildings with this mud that dries. Uh, people needed help <laughs> to be able to understand this. I'm not going to go have a bedroom on a second floor of mud, but it was so much more than that. And um, they worked on refining the process, and Edison actually helped to refine the creation of concrete cement quite a bit. Uh, one of the big things that he did was, remember, you have to heat it. After you mix all of those ingredients of the cement, you need to heat it. And what they would do is they'd fill up this tower bin thing, get it really, really, really hot. They get it up to about, at least now, they get it to a fourth of what the temperature of the sun is. It's like 2,700 degrees Fahrenheit. So they'd fill it up, they'd do it, and then they'd pull it out. And then they'd fill it up, they'd heat it and pull it out. And Edison was the first one that I'm aware of that used a kiln, a rotating kiln. So instead of a big, tall bin, like in this picture, they would send it through a rotating kiln. So it would literally come right out, go through this huge kiln, and come out the other side ready to be crushed and used for cement. So he's refining how to create this. And he's trying to convince people about how we can use this for so many things. Probably his biggest order that he had for cement, well, not probably. Certainly his biggest order was the Yankees Stadium. Um, they built... A obviously, it's a huge stadium, and they used all the cement from it was used um, using Edison's cement from his plant. And this cement was so strong that years later, and just in the 70s, they did a big renovation on the stadium. And they said that when they got to Edison's cement, they worked around it, and they left it because the structure was still so strong that it didn't need any changes. So they left that, and it they didn't tear it down till just like 2010, I think, when they actually, they had just moved the Yankee Stadium. So it tells you how strong that cement was, even all the way back then. 
and they would eventually build the first mile highway. It was a mile long strip of road. So a lot of convincing work to get people on this new technology, but something that, I mean, we're standing in a cement building, one that is, or I, I guess I should say concrete, okay? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but you know, it's a pretty amazing thing. And to think that all of it, every single piece of concrete is happening through the chemistry of when you put that water on the cement and the science behind it. And when somebody finally figured out the chemistry behind making that cement and then into the concrete, it changed the entire world. So, and you know, they say Babe Ruth built the house of the Yankees. I guess it was actually Edison, but <laughs> thank you. <laughs> And now introducing Roger Billings. How'd they know I drive like and that? And there she is. <laughs> Actually, it's surprising you'd ask. Yeah. We ha we've been doing some research about you. Oh, goodness. And we found that out. <laughs> That's pretty good right yeah, we there. Did, we did find out. You know, they were talking about all of the things that nature made that we can learn from. Uh -huh. Did you know that nature made her? <laughs> nature made. Yep, mm -hmm. Nature made. In and and out. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of things about her that we found out in our research study. We were trying to find out origin. Oh, goodness. Planet of origin. Did you find out? Let me report it. <laughs> so anyway, what we found out first is she loves butterflies. That I do. And in fact, I see you're wearing a butterfly. I am? Yeah. Do you want to tell them about that? Can we get a close-up on that butterfly, please? It's, it should be seen. Can you hold it up so we can get a close-up? Hmm. Yep. There it is. There it is. Can you see that? That's kind of pretty, isn't it? Can you tell us about it? It was a gift, okay. and it's, a, it's an heirloom piece. Mm -hmm. um, it's from over the pond, as they would say. It came from the UK, mm -hmm. and it uh, symbolizes a lot to me. Of course, butterflies, too. Now we're getting sentimental. <laughs> Just a minute. We are. I'm okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, tell us why you like butterflies so much. I think butterflies are a miracle, literally. You, they started out as a caterpillar, all of these legs with antenna, and they look really like they're not going to become anything. In fact, Did you know I'm in the caterpillar stage right now? <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh, yeah? That's, that, that's inspiring because it's, you've done so much. Now I know oh, we can man. go back. Can you imagine what I'm going to be? <laughs> okay, keep going. Excuse the interruption, please. So they start out I as just this wanted. caterpillar. No, go ahead. Uh -huh. go ahead. So what, what kind of butterfly are you? No, please, go ahead. Uh, I'm, I'm intrigued. <laughs> Not a butterfly, I'm a caterpillar. <laughs> yeah? Okay. So I interrupted, now you're not going to finish. <laughs> I want to hear the rest. Why do you like them so much? So they go through this phase of crawling on the ground, and um, some of them are actually quite odd looking and a little bit scary. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> not what I would call fantastic. I mean, they are amazing. You mean the caterpillars? The caterpillars. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I'm not shaming anybody. Okay. <laughs> and then uh, they spin their chrysalis, 
and a miracle happens where they become liquid inside and everything that they were is absolutely not anymore. Now that's gross. <laughs> it's gross and it's also amazing. It's mm -hmm. absolutely amazing. And then when it's time to come out, they have wings and they have colors and they have the ability to reflect light that shows magnificent diversity of brilliant colors and they can fly. Something mm -hmm. that could crawl now, now they can fly. And I wanna, I put that to my life sometimes. Okay, well I'll buy into that. But it does bring up another question. Oh yeah? See my microphone? Uh-huh. It's black. It is black. And yours is white. How come I get the black when you get the white one? White's my color. Oh. Oh, down the, oh. <laughs> white and gold, look at that. Look at this. <laughs> this is a Peugeot boot. We talked about these. Mm -hmm. You designed these, yeah. didn't you? I did. And they're white. Mm-hmm. So part of our study was to find out what is this thing she's got with white? White microphone? Mm -hmm. White boot? Mm -hmm. White desk in her office? White, white, white. Yep. What is it with white? I like white. You like white? Yes. Well, let's look into that a little bit. Could we get image number one, please? Oh, dear. <clears throat> Okay, it's coming. Wait for it. Page one. Page one. From the vault. Here it is. Five, four, three, two, one half. <laughs> I don't think a quarter, it an eighth, sixteenth. We're almost there. That's kind of like me. Okay. Well, I can see that your people have sabotaged <laughs> my people. And I, we, have some, I have some friends. Yes, I do. Okay, well, let me, let me lay a little bit better foundation for oh, this. Yeah? You see, okay. we were interested in origins. Yes. And, and we saw this white, mm -hmm. and then some of the people observed that uh, you have a ride, mm -hmm. and your ride is white. So take a look at this. Yeah, can you see that that insignia is gold? <laughs> me? That's gold. Yes, Does that look familiar? Now let's do number two, which is kind of a side view. Look at that. That is my ride. We're that taking pictures is of right. My ride. Now we're not sure <laughs> whether that's yours or you know it could be anybody's. That's true. But maybe from image number three we can tell. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> You've been, yeah. Okay, that's so mine. if anybody sees that's my name. The white streak going down the freeway. <laughs> With the gold emblem. Now they'll know who it is, won't they? They will. Yeah, it's pretty good. Well, I think that your butterflies are wonderful, and I think it's neat that you choose them kind of as your symbol. Mm -hmm. um, butterflies are really neat, and I think everybody ought to have things that are our favorites. When I was very young, I made a very big decision. I decided that my favorite color was blue. Now, why blue? Won't get into that. But... It's nice to have a favorite color. Everyone should choose one. And we should choose other things mm -hmm. in this world that we, we really, really like. Tonight I want to jump in and talk a little bit about what we're really here to talk about, and that is science and projects and things we do. Science is a tool to be able to accomplish things that uh, without the tools of science we wouldn't be able to do. And one of the biggest tools of science 
is a thing called the scientific method. And the scientific method is a way of figuring out how to do things through a systematic and orderly approach. And you that are working on the science fair know exactly what I'm talking about. You choose a question that you want to understand, that you want to know the answer to. And if you use the scientific method, you start out by studying your question and coming up with a hypothesis or a theory, an idea of what's going on. And then you design or you invent an experiment to find out whether or not you're right. Now, Dr. John tonight told us about this amazing fingernail polish that is used to be able to study this microstructure in the wing of a cicada. And won't it be interesting if they find out some wonderful uses for it? Someone noticed that a water droplet, when it, like rain, when it hits the wing of a cicada, it just stays like a little ball and runs off. It doesn't make the wing wet. And that could be kind of important if you get too heavy with, with water. If you get soaked, it might not be able to fly. So it's a neat property, and we can take that technology and apply it to other places. A lot of the good ideas in science come from nature, and sometimes they come from accidents, and all of that's really good. But I, I want to show you some of my artwork tonight. This is probably about as close as I get to artwork. I've got a little thing here I'm going to draw on. This is a diagram. And I'm going to say across the bottom here, the x-axis is time. And going up this side, I'm just going to put OPT, which I'm going to call optimism. And this is going to be for a project. And ever since um, I finished my, I'll call it an internship, or my mentoring with Bill Lear, I've been on a series of projects, projects of my own choosing, projects that I wanted to do, that I was able to do, and it's been a lot of fun. And frankly, I feel like I've been very fortunate to have more than my share of projects. And projects are neat, starting out for me with the science fair. But I want to draw an optimism curve for you. You start out right at the beginning point here, and you don't know what you're going to do. You don't have an idea. You haven't figured out anything. And you start looking at cicada wings and everything else. And then all of a sudden, you get a really good idea. And as you look at it, the idea starts to get more optimistic. And you start getting excited. This is something I could do. And you start seeing all the things you could do with it. And your optimism, your excitement builds and then at some point here, you decide, okay, I'm going to do it. And you start putting your project into commercialization. I'm actually going to do this. And then something remarkable almost always happens. <laughs> As you start trying to really do it, then you start to finding all the problems, all the reasons why it won't work. And your optimism goes crash. Down it goes, and you get very discouraged. That is the point at which most people quit. In fact, a lot of the inventors in our world start off with a lot of enthusiasm. They reach this 
point where they finally decide they're going to quit their job, they're going to do whatever they do to launch their project, and then they start running into problems. And when they get right down the bottom of the optimism curve, they give up. And one of the things I learned from Bill Lear is this is a natural cycle. And you better be prepared to get through that point of discouragement and go on. And your optimism from there seems to go something like this. As you start to solve the problems one by one, your optimism rebuilds very slowly. And if you learn that curve, and if you plan your project, you say, boy, this is going to look really good until I actually get ready to do it, then I'm going to run into every problem imaginable and even many not imaginable, but I'm not going to give up because I want to do this project so bad I'm going to hang on, and then off you go, building. Now, I want, to, I want to put this into a real world situation by sharing with you one of many experiences I've had where I've found out that this is the curve. And by the way, I learned this curve from Bill Air. And I, as I recall, he called it the optimism curve. And I, I'm really grateful I did because being ready for it, I didn't stop right there when it looked like, ugh, this is never going to work. Now, please don't confuse what I'm saying with when you find out you had a bad idea. <laughs> if it turns out you can really see it's a bad idea, then it's time for plan B. Okay? And, you know, there is a, a thing you don't want to publish negative results. You don't want to ride a project that's dead. Mm -hmm. If it's really not going to work, you want to get off as soon as you can. And people would be wise if they would learn how to evaluate a project better before they embark. Um, I think that for every project that you choose to do in your life, you should probably have about 99 projects that you come across and that you evaluate and you decide not to do. Nobody that I've met, nor do I think I will ever meet, has every project they ever thought of turn out to be good. And remember Edison used to talk about doing mental experiments. Remember Edison, the concrete guy, you know, that made baseball great in New York, that we just heard about, was Bill Lear's mentor. And one of the things that, that Edison used to say is that he would do most of his experiments in his head before he actually spent time trying to mix chemicals together and do it the hard way. And if you get good at mental experiments, you can actually try a lot of things in your brain. For example, would you like to try a mental experiment for us? Mm -hmm. Would you guys like to see this? Okay, this could be good. Okay, go ahead. You're going to see it in my brain? Okay, here we go. Watch, guys. <laughs> okay, go ahead. So how'd it come out? I'm still working on it. Okay. <laughs> But it, it is really a, uh, an ability that is acquired. You can actually learn to do an experiment and get a result you, you, if you can visualize it. And whenever I try to do this, I have to get over the obstacle of words. Mm. Whenever you think in words, it's hard to do mental experiments. So you've got to switch to thinking in images. And it's fascinating. Lots of times when we think, we think in words just like we talk just like we read, just like we write. But if you're going to do a mental experiment, it's a lot better if you can, if you can see it. 
And with practice, you can develop the ability of thinking in images, and it's a whole different thing. And so you actually, you build it in your mind, and you try different things, and you say, oh, that's not going to work. As you get better at it, you can actually learn a lot more from a mental experiment than you ever thought. Most of my good ideas die in the mental experiment stage. When I try to build them in a mental model, I realize that idea is flawed. And unless I can figure out the answer to the flaw, then I scrap it. But I want to I take you on, on a quick discussion of one of the projects that went over this curve. And like I say, there's, there's a lot of them that I could. Uh, I think almost every project I've done has followed this curve, at least every project that succeeded. Some, you know, they go up and figure out, and then they don't just come down in optimism. They crash. And then I discard them and never want to talk about it again. <laughs> Deny even thinking about it. Okay? Are you with me? Uh -huh. So the project I'm talking about took place clear back in the mid-1970s. I was just out of school. I was starting a business, and I became very excited about the idea of small computers. A company called Intel, have you heard of them? I have. Yeah, Intel had come out with a little microprocessor, a single chip that was basically a whole computer. And because of that, the idea of being able to make a little computer was born. Before that, computers of necessity were huge. But when they reduced it all into a chip, then it was possible to think that you could build a computer for each person. Now that's something we kind of take for granted today. Everybody has a very powerful computer in their cell phone. But uh, back in the mid-70s, that thought had not reached planet Earth yet. And nobody was thinking like that. But as I read about the microprocessor, I decided this could be something really, really exciting. So I decided I was going to build one. At the time, uh, there was no Apple. There weren't any microcomputer companies. And so I started building the Billings microcomputer. And uh, my first computer consisted of a big box that was the central processing unit, and another box, which was the disk drives, and the power supplies for the disk drives. And I had these big boxes, and I got them all hooked up to a terminal. And I actually had a computer that I could run a simple little program written in assembler. And so I built three or four of them, and then I went out and tried to sell them. I was pretty excited when I started. It was a lot more work building this computer than I ever dreamed it would be. But I actually got it working. And so where do you go to sell your first computers? And I went to my neighbors, people I knew, told them, look at this great computer. It's you know, about 500 pounds, and <laughs> it's in five boxes. And nobody would buy it. It, it was neat, but it was. For, for those that are old computer buffs, it was an S100 bus machine, which was, uh, it was just kludgy and crazy. And I realized no one wants this because, first of all, it's too expensive. And second of all, it can't really do anything. So I started building a brand new version. Now remember, about this time, if I look on this curve again, 
I'm clear down at the bottom of the optimism curve because I built this, I put so much effort in. I had to actually have each one of these circum circuit boards designed and then I had to manufacture them, had to get a, a, a wave solder machine so that I could build it. And I got some built and nobody would buy them. And that's pretty discouraging. In fact, most people told me that I was crazy to think that you could have a little computer like that for people. This is the mainframe days. So I said, you know, I need to back up. I'm doing something wrong here. And so I conceived of a computer where everything would fit in one box. And I was going to have the whole computer, the CPU, the disk drives, everything. When I started this design, there were no disk drives that would fit in the box. There were big 8-inch ones that made the box huge. But I designed it for these smaller ones. And I did a lot of things to be able to make this computer work. One of the reasons that nobody wanted to buy it is it was just way too expensive. And one of the reasons that it was expensive was because memory, memory that you have to have in a computer was very expensive. Now today we kind of take memory for granted. We measure it in gigabytes or terabytes. But back in the mid-70s, we measured memory in bytes. <laughs> and the total memory you could have in a computer, because it was the maximum that a CPU could address, was 64,000 bytes. I mean, that's nothing that's today. Insane. But in my computer, I put in memory cards that were 4,000 bytes each. And in my big computer, you put four of them in was the maximum that would fit, and it would hold 16,000 bytes. With 16,000 bytes, even back then, you couldn't do anything. It just wasn't enough memory. The CPU could handle 64,000 bytes, but no one could afford it because it was so darn expensive. And it was a kind of memory we called static memory. And so I realized, if I'm going to make this computer work, I've got to bring that memory cost way, 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 way down. And I couldn't figure out how to do it. How can I make, I don't even make memory, I just buy it. How am I going to make it so much cheaper? Now, Intel was building a little microprocessor and they gave it a name. They called it the 8080A. That was the model of it. It was a 16-bit microprocessor and it... Uh, 16-bit addressing, 8-bit instruction, and it, it had very, very little power. But one of the guys that had worked on the development of that microprocessor was a guy named Frederico. And he left Intel and formed his own company, which he called Zilog. And he decided he was going to build a next-generation CPU that was going to be compatible with the Intel one, but he's going to call it the Z80 for the Zilog 8080-compatible CPU. And so he started building this thing, and I met him right when he did, and I said, hey, I need a favor. I'll buy your CPU. There's a capability we've got to have, and that capability is memory refresh. Now, memory refresh is a, is a thing that you should all understand because it really changed the computer industry. 
If you uh, write in static memory, if you, write, if you store a number like I store the number 6,000 in memory, mm -hmm. it will remember that number for you until someone turns off the power on the computer. When you turn off the power, everything in RAM or in memory is lost. But as long as the power is on, it will remember it. The only problem with static memory is it was way too expensive. I couldn't build a computer that could do anything for the amount of money that people would be willing to spend. But there was another kind of memory called dynamic memory. And it was cheap. It was really cheap. But the only problem is it could only remember things, oh, for about a thousandth of a second. And so if you could work real fast. And the problem was with, with dynamic memory, you had to write the number, 6,000. And then in less than a thousandth of a second, you had to read it back, see, oh, it's 6,000, and you have to write it again. And then it, because it was a capacitor, and it would just lose its charge. So you'd read to see what it was, and then write it back, and read it. And you had to do that a thousand times a second. Well, with these little processors, you could do that. You could read it and write it back a thousand times a second, but it completely busied out the computer. That's all it could do. It could just remember the 6,000. You couldn't do any math or anything else with it. And so I said, I need a CPU that will read dynamic memory and write the value back, refresh it, they call it, without me doing anything. I just want it to do it in hardware so it's invisible to the user. Because then I can use this really, really cheap memory. And he did it. Frederico did it. And I was in for a surprise because the first CPU he sent me didn't work. We had to help debug it. And we went through three versions before he finally got one that he could put into production and we could sell. But he did it. And with that, I was able to offer a computer that was very affordable and it had a full 64K of memory. And I want to show you an ad that I ran in a magazine called Datamation. Take a look at it. Introducing the new Billings Microsystem, 3995. Now, if you look, you've got a keyboard, you've got a display, and you've got two floppy drives. So everything is right there in that box. And this little computer sold for under $4,000. Now remember, I've been trying to build these big clungy ones. They sold for about $12,000 and weren't quite as powerful as this one because they only had 16K of memory. This one had 64K. And I wondered, what if nobody will buy this? Because I was just about out of all the money that I could conjure up to build this thing, and I really needed it to go. Now, you see that cabinet that it's in? I needed a cabinet for this all-in-one computer, and I found a company in Des Moines that made cabinets out of a type of plastic called foam molding. And so I had my team design this cabinet, and we sent it to them, and they made a mold to be able to make these cabinets for us. But it took longer than they thought. And so we got the inside parts all ready to go. We were ready to ship, but we didn't have any cabinets. And we actually started building quite a few of these guts for that, that computer. What, what do you do with a computer that doesn't have a cabinet? And we didn't 
quit, of course. We made what we called wooden wonders. <laughs> and we took some tubifores and cut them and screwed them together, and then we bolted the parts on it just to hold them while we were building the, or waiting for the cabinets to come. So we got a whole bunch of wooden wonders built. When I say a whole bunch, I think it was like 10. <laughs> and you gotta understand, well, you can only build about five a month, 10's quite a few. So we got them all built, we're waiting for the cabinet, waiting for the cabinet, I'm running out of money. So when it said it was gonna be at least another month, I decided I need to go to market. So I went down to a, a company that draws renderings of new homes for people. When you're gonna get a home built, the architect designs it, and these guys would draw a picture of what your house gonna look like, so you go to the bank and get your loan. And I said, I need a picture of what my computer's gonna look like. Can you please draw this cabinet for me? And I showed him the blueprints and the drawings, and so I said, sure, and he drew it. And let's look at that picture again. That picture is his drawing. That computer did not exist because we had the guts and the wooden wonders, but the foam molded cabinet hadn't come from Des Moines yet. But I bought a full page ad in Datamation Magazine, which is one of the, the technology magazines of the time. And in the mail, we started receiving envelopes and we opened them up and they all had checks for $3,995. And from that one ad, we received 900 and something checks. It was almost $4 million. And to me, you see, that was a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, was, I was pretty excited about it. So all of a sudden now, I've got all of this money, and now all I gotta do is start shipping these computers. Well, fortunately, as this money started rolling in, the cabinets arrived from Des Moines. Hallelujah. And so we unscrewed the wooden wonders and put the parts inside the cabinet, put them together, turned it on, and the screen went, it was all, you could see that it, it was trying to put up the writing, but it was all funny. And it would dance around and we go, <laughs> the wooden wonders were running fine, but when we put them in the real cabinet, hmm. they went screwy. And I've got all these people screaming, where's my, I sent you a check, where's my, where's my computer? Well, it turned out that in the wooden wonders, the computer board, which had the power supply on it with a big transformer, was closer to the monitor than in the real cabinets. I mean, it was farther away from the monitor. In the real cabinets, it came closer together. In the wooden wonders, it worked fine, but when we bolted them close together, the transformer interfered with the screen. And they were not usable. And now I had probably 30 or 40 of them built there, and I couldn't ship them to anybody. And so here I am, I finally got a computer that everybody wants, it's gonna be amazing, it's got 64K memory, but I can't build any. So we had to go back and tear the transformer and the power supply off of the circuit board, the motherboard, and put it in a little box that we put on the floor with a little cable up. We had to rewire them all, and we were finally able to ship our first computer. Well. 
if we can go back to this <laughs> optimism curve again, optimism went clear down and then it started going up as we solved the, the memory cost problem and then the keyboard, I mean the CRTs don't work and all these different things and gradually, gradually, gradually we started to get this thing off the ground. Now I had computers and I started shipping them to people. When you can only build five or ten a month, 900 is quite a backlog. And so we, we went and got a much bigger building and started building a factory to build 1,000 a month. And the orders started coming in within a year. I had about 500 resellers all around the world. But when I shipped the computers to people, they asked the same questions. So I've got it. It's wonderful. What do I do with it? And so just, you know, you could run word processor. We didn't have a word processor. We didn't have any software. We just had one little startup program. And they could write their own if they were a programmer. <laughs> and so I heard about a guy that had a program called eBasic. And he had it running so it could be ported over to this machine. And I went down to see him. And he was just a kid that had left school and was trying to start a little company. And the, his office was in his apartment. And I negotiated to buy the rights to his eBasic program. And then, you know, I had $4 million. And I needed software bad. So I said, well, I'll give you $340,000 if you'll write for me, Fortran, Cobol, MacroAssembler, and, and sell me eBasic. And that was the beginning of my relationship with Bill Gates. And I just happened to bring a picture. I'm wondering if maybe you can see this on this camera. Hmm, there he is. <laughs> can you see Bill Gates there? This looks like there's a little glare. Oh, there goes the glare. Oh, got rid of that, didn't I? Can you notice sitting by Bill Gates there on his desk is the Billings computer? Now this picture came out of Time Magazine and behind Bill is the, at the time, brand new IBM PC. IBM PC came out five years after the Billings computer. And it's interesting to me that Bill Gates was still using the Billings computer after all those years. He had acquired it and uh, his first software development in fact, if you go look at the financials for Microsoft that year, I think my little contract was like 60% of the revenue. So I got to see Microsoft, you know, kind of when it was still in diapers. And it's, it's kind of exciting to uh, be able to remember back how the industry started out. Now, we took this computer to the uh, West Coast uh, Computer Show. And it's kind of a famous show. This was the, the first time that Apple came out with their computer. And we were in the same show. We had this computer. They had a, a little thing that you'd hook onto a TV and you'd play video games. And we had a computer that by now had word processing and, and all of these different programs that uh, we had developed. And actually, this little computer is really what launched my career financially. We made enough money off of this that we've been able to do a lot of other things. And in a way, this finance to sell us and, and a lot of things that we've done. So if I had just 
had enough sense to give up when it seemed like this was never going to work. Uh, none of this would have happened. And I think there is a, a great lesson that I learned from Bill Lear, and uh, I, I think he learned it from Thomas Edison, and maybe some of you will learn it tonight from Dr. Page and I, and that is choose your projects careful. Spend, spend some time doing your homework. Remember, most projects are not a good idea. Uh, Steve Jobs said the hard thing isn't figuring out which projects to do. The hard thing is figuring out which ones not to do, yeah. not to waste your time, and it's really true. And I, one of the, the things that we really try to teach the students here at the International Academy of Science is how to know which projects to stay away from. Which ones are just going to waste your time and end up in the ditch? And sometimes, you know, we get it wrong. Uh, all of my companies, and I've started a handful, all of my companies have succeeded. But not all of my projects have succeeded. And sometime maybe we'll talk about all the ones that didn't. Well, maybe not in this lifetime. <laughs> but I don't have to talk about them because I was careful to limit them to a minimum. And I always had at least one project for every company that did take off and was successful. And I have been told many times that I am very stubborn, meaning that I hate giving up on an idea even though it looks like it's going to be a real uphill battle. And that's kind of what we need to do. Now, I've got one other thing I want to show you here. This is, uh, there. oh boy, that's not very big. Maybe I can hold it up a little bit. This is a gold key token. And this plugs into a USB port on a computer. And this is a neat little medallion that comes with them. But this is... One of the projects that I'm, I'm, can we put it back on here a minute? Uh, see if I can hold a little better. Ah, you can almost see it there, can't you? Wouldn't it be amazing if I get right underneath there? Okay, can you see the gold key on there? This is the company that I'm working on today, personally. Uh, the company's name is actually Cybersecurity Corporation, and gold key is this little security token. When you put this in a computer, it allows you to secure your computer and your records and make things private. Uh, all the teachers that teach with Acellus use gold keys to protect student information. And I'm hoping that next year I'll be able to issue gold keys to all of our Acellus students so that we can do secure video conferencing and things. I think there is a very big need in the world right now for making computers secure. They're not. We're doing banking on them, we're doing transactions, we're doing private communications, and they're not so private. And so I see this as one of the technologies that we're very, very much in need of. I am at a point in my career where I'm not trying to see if I can make enough money to pay for dinner tomorrow. I mean, there was a time, <laughs> and, but it was a long time ago. After this computer, I've been able to, to do a lot of things I wouldn't have done if this project had not succeeded. 
But now, the only projects I want to do are projects that I think are going to make the world a better place. And, you know, it's, it's kind of fun. Uh, I'm still able to have success, and I've um, built wideband networking that advanced uh, gigabit ethernet and other things and, and really changed the world and we're building our physics servers and, and a lot of you know about them because you're involved in them, a lot of you here tonight. But being able to build a successful company is a, is a wonderful, fulfilling thing. It gives you a sense of accomplishment and purpose and especially if the thing that you accomplish is something that you feel is really beneficial to mankind. Now, I want to go back to that little ad on the Billings computer uh, that came out in the mid-70s. And when this computer came out, you know, there's, there's a lot of computers like it and, and much fancier today. But it was a paradigm shift. Uh, this idea of having a computer for every person just wasn't around, and especially a real computer, not a video game but something that was really, really serious, like uh, eventually the industry came about. I'm very proud of the fact that this thing uh, came to exist inside my mind. And I built it first mentally before it was built in our factory. And after a lot of challenges, it became something that was very, very widely produced and was very successful for me. I believe it was one of the technologies that really helped launch the computer industry as we have it today, and I'm very proud of it. I sold it at a fairly early stage, and I've done that with most of my technology, especially my early ones, because when I started out, I didn't have any money. Uh, I, just finished school and, and I did schooling without any student loans and so I was, I was pretty tight. But after this technology caught on, then I was able to do a lot of other things. One of the things that Bill Lear told me that I want to leave with you as a parting thought tonight, because it was, at the time, it was very um, upsetting to me that he would think this, but now I I see he was absolutely right, but he said this adage that you have to have money to make money isn't true. He says what you have to do is you have to get all your ducks in a row. You gotta figure out what your what your dream is. You gotta dream your dream. Remember his comment, most people's dreams never come true because people don't know what they're dreaming for. People never decide what it is they want to achieve. Well, let that not be said about you and me. Let's figure out what we really want to do. And when you figure out your goal, then you can put the ducks in a row. And the ducks in a row is figuring out the technology, figuring out how you're going to market, figuring out how you're going to manufacture it. And when you get all those pieces in place, away you go. Uh, Gold Key is still a in a very real way, it's a pre-launch company. It's been around for quite a while. It's profitable. Uh, but the company, I think, has the potential of being very significant. It's fun to me 
to realize that this technology is currently being used by the military, the U.S. military, and, and a shout out to them today. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm very grateful for the people that protect our freedom. But the U.S. military, it's being used by NASA, it's being used by a lot of people to secure their stuff. And everybody that uses a cellus is being impacted by this because it gives us a way for the teachers to be able to uh, monitor your work and your data without making it vulnerable. So wouldn't it be wonderful if someone uh, listening with us tonight is realizing that it's your turn now and you have the ability, you have the power, and you have the potential to do very, very great things. I feel like that one of the reasons that, that I've been able to enjoy the project's success that I've had is because I met Bill Lear and because he made me realize I can do these things. And I hope I can make you realize that too because I am right, you can. And it's going to be work, and you're going to go down the optimism curve before you, you go on to success. But you can do it, and I hope many of you will do that. And a good place to start, like I did, is with the science fair coming up next spring. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week. Have a great one.